This is Joshua Bell with The Kilt on the Cloth. This sermon was from Reverend Dr. Paxton Jones, someone who's been in my life for most of it. And I believe in a lot of ways, if it hadn't been for him, I probably wouldn't have been ordained or have gone to seminary. So without further ado, Reverend Dr. Paxton Jones. Servants line of Kansas. And when Josh's parents would come and bring the kids to visit the grandparents, I got introduced to him. That was a long time ago. Longer than Josh or I either one will admit to. I'll also bring you greetings this morning from your brothers and sisters in the faith from throughout the Oklahoma region and from your regional minister, Pam Holt, as she finishes this her last month of sabbatical. Hear now this word from the Gospel of Mark. He left that place and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. On the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astounded. They said, Where did this man get all this? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? What deeds of power are being done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joses and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Then Jesus said to them, Prophets are not without honor, except in their hometown, and among their own kin, and in their own house. And he could do no deed of power there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and cured them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Then he went about among the villages teaching. He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He ordered them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. He said to them, Wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave. If any place will not welcome you, and they refuse to hear you, as you leave, shake the dust that is on your feet off as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that all should repent. They cast out many demons, and they anointed with oil many who were sick, and cured them. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever gone back to your hometown after perhaps years away, and been surprised by the people and the places that you find there? It's kind of weird, isn't it? I remember the first time I went back to my father's church in San Antonio where I grew up and going in the education wing with one of my good friends from high school and we looked at each other and said, were these halls always this short or this narrow? I mean, we remembered them as these great places to run 
and do relays. And now we could literally raise up and touch the ceiling with our hands. It was just strange. My wife Janie and I went to Salina last weekend for the funeral of one of my oldest friends. Afterwards, we drove around the town a little bit. We drove past our old house and marveled at how small it looked. We also marveled at the Bradford pear trees, which when we planted them were shorter than I am, and now we're 20 to 25 feet tall. When did that happen? We drove down a reinvigorated Main Street, which was nothing much to brag about when we lived there, and we drove past other places that were once familiar and now were different. Some were better, some were worse. The sanctuary of the church where I used to serve and where the service was held looked the same, but it felt smaller to me. And the people at the funeral, those folks in the congregation that I had served 25 years ago, don't tell them. They got old. The grandchildren of my friend, for instance, the little kids who attended grand camp with us were adults and they had their own kids and that just wasn't right. Somehow I suspect they had similar thoughts about me who once had dark hair and a dark beard and was considerably slimmer than I am now. When did that happen? The point is that things change, perceptions change, and not always for the better, even after a short absence. That's what Mark's text is trying to tell us this morning. In the chapter that leads up to the passage that I just read, Mark has described a series of extraordinary events Miracles, if you will. He's told how Jesus has stilled a storm at sea, how he healed a demoniac. He told of how a woman with a chronic hemorrhage, who in faith had merely reached out to touch the hem of Jesus' cloak, had been healed. And he concluded his narration by telling how Jesus restored life itself to the young daughter of Jairus, who is the leader of the synagogue at Capernaum. Throughout his ministry thus far, Jesus' ministry had centered on that seaside community. It was his base of operations. But now Jesus decides it's time to return to his hometown. And he sets off for Nazareth with his understandably confused disciples. They must have wondered, why now? Why is he walking away when he's just finished these awesome displays of power? Why does he not whip up the crowd with tales of the coming kingdom? Why does he not rouse a messianic army to march on Jerusalem? Why is he walking away? Going off to his little backwater hometown, Nazareth. Whatever they might have been expecting there, whatever acclaim they might have thought he would find there, I doubt seriously they anticipated what actually happened. 
let's just th say that things did not go well. Don't be misled by Mark's beginning, where he says that on the Sabbath, Jesus began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astounded. They said, where did this man get all this? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? What are these deeds of power that are being done by him? Mark makes it sound as if his home folk were impressed. The stories of his activities around Capernaum and throughout Galilee undoubtedly had preceded his return. People they knew and trusted probably had been eyewitnesses to some of these events. But the problem is the written language, especially translated from Greek, doesn't let you hear the irony and the sarcasm in the words. These people are not impressed by Jesus. These people are annoyed by Jesus. Maybe because he hasn't performed any miracles yet in his hometown. Or maybe, just maybe, because they think they know him. They've watched him grow up from a toddler. They've seen him follow Joseph around the carpentry shop, handing his dad various tools while he learns the trade. He, they have smiled in satisfaction on the Sabbaths when he has unrolled the scripture holding the Torah and read it in the synagogue. They've also shaken their heads in dismay as he's abandoned his trade, as he's left his mother and his siblings to go off traipsing in the wilderness following some vague call from God. Who does he think he is, anyway? The Messiah? Mark says it. They think they know him. Is this not Jesus? The carpenter, the son of Mary, whose brothers and sisters we know from Nazareth of all places? Even Nathaniel, one of the twelve, originally had questioned when Philip came to tell him they had found the Messiah and that he was a Nazarene, said, Can anything good? come from Nazareth? You can almost hear the town folks sneering as they mock him and his origins as Mark with incredible understatement notes, well, you know, they took offense at him. Oh, really? They more than took offense at him. They despise what he said he had become. Mark sadly adds, in the light of all this rejection, uh, Jesus was amazed at their unbelief. And he turned to them and he said to those gathered that day, you know, prophets are not without honor, except in their own hometown, and among their own kin, and in their own house. You see, we shouldn't be surprised by their reaction. Matthew has already told us how Jesus' mother and his brothers, embarrassed by his preaching, perhaps afraid that he had gone a little mad, 
tried on at least one occasion to convince him to leave what he was doing and come home. If his own family didn't believe him, why should his hometown folks? And so they rejected him. But not all of them. There's a comment that slips in at verse 5 that we often ignore or just don't notice when we read this passage. We see the first half of the sentence. We pick up on the understandable fact that he could do no deed of power there because of their unbelief. But then comes that second half of the sentence. Except except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and cured them. Wait, what? Thank God there are some there in Nazareth who believe, some there who understand, some there who even in the midst of watching him be rejected by their friends and their neighbors, understand this is a prophet. Accept the fact that he is the Holy One of God. Long for the truth that maybe, just maybe, he's the long-awaited Messiah. When the woman plagued by a hemorrhage had been healed earlier, Jesus had told her that it was her faith that made her well. I suspect the same is true here, that because they believed in him, he could cure them, even in Nazareth. The really cool thing about this story, I think, is that Jesus didn't allow this rejection by so many of his friends and neighbors to stop him on his mission. He cured these few, but then he not only goes on on his mission, he expands it. As he goes among the nearby villages, he ex uses this experience in Nazareth as a teaching moment. He calls the twelve together and he sends them out two by two to teach and to heal in his name. Telling them that they need to take nothing with them except the walking staff and the good news of the gospel. Because of their message, he says, they will be taken in and they will be cared for. But if not, he adds, if you come upon those who know you, if you encounter your family, people who know your origins or your history, they may very well refuse to accept what you say. That's okay. Don't take it personally. That is their loss, not yours. Oh, he doesn't use those exact words. What he says is, as you leave, if they have not accepted what you have said, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them and then get on about the business of proclaiming that the kingdom of God has come near. And in talking to them, he's talking to us.
telling us that the business at hand is to proclaim the gospel. Whether it's accepted or rejected is not up to us. That's up to the ones who hear us. What is our job is to tell the good news of Jesus Christ. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Would you pray with me? Lord, sometimes we get confused what it is you've called us to do. We get worried that if we witness to you, if we tell people how faith in you has impacted our lives, people won't listen. Or worse yet, they'll reject us. They'll make fun of us. Remind us that's not our problem. Remind us that every day by our words and by our actions, we are to live as witnesses to you and to the life you have given to us and offer to each who will accept you as Lord and Savior. Lord, we have ears. Help us to hear. Hear. 